Well, springtime has come, so it is time of, of transitions. And so uh, some of the things that happen at springtime are the, the flowers start to bloom like we have here, the, the birds fly back, the trees begin to bud, the grass turns green, the, the days get longer, or as uh, my wife said this morning on our way to church, the sun comes out. Like it's been gone for a long time, and now it it finally comes comes out. Uh, we also have though uh, graduations. Um, I, I know that we were at a, a graduation ceremony yesterday for uh, Rockford University, and uh, I know we have some graduates in, in our midst. I know uh, Cassie Velk. Is she even here today? She got work tonight, so she's not here. I saw John. Cassie graduated on Friday. I know Aisha. Is Aisha here today? Maybe she's not. Uh, she graduated from uh, um, Rock Valley, looking to go to ISU in the fall. Uh, I know that uh, um, the Webbers had a son graduate from Rock Valley. Maybe are there others? I don't even know. Those are just kind of off the top of my, my head, sort of. But it is a time of, of graduation. It is a time of, of transition. Uh, so we went yesterday to the, the Rockford University graduation in the Coronado to see our, uh, our international student, William, uh, graduate. He, uh, at the end of the graduation, you know, there was a, was a time in which they got their diplomas, kind of like they're going over, and the time where they transitioned their tassel from one side to the other. And uh, then a phrase that Yvonne and I sort of laughed at. Um, at the end, there was someone, every, every time there were like, I don't know, five, six groups that graduated, and every time something like this was said, welcome into the community of the educated. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> like it's, um, I don't see it quite like that, but that's, that's what was done. Welcome into the community of the educated, like uh, wonderful. Anyway, but here is a, a transitions, and as you all know, we are transitioning in the book of Romans. So we've been taking about a paragraph every week. Uh, we're transitioning just between this uh, salvation section and the sanctification. Sin is in chapters 1 through 3. Salvation is in chapters 3 through 5. And beginning in chapter 6, we have sanctification. Now, one of the things as we transition is that we need to be really careful. And I feel like in some ways I wasn't so careful last week. Um, but we need to be careful thinking that there's just one subject, salvation, and then another subject, sanctification. As if they're, they're two different things, as if they are, are distinct from one another. And our tendency is to, to put some distance between those. Like, like now we're saved, and uh, now that we've believed and trusted in Christ, then we have this opportunity then to transition to seek to... Um, sanctify ourselves or to be sanctified or to walk walk rightly um what do we john piper's written about the debtor's ethic he, he said this he said the debtor's ethic has a deadly appeal to immature christians it comes packaged as a gratitude ethic and says things like this god has done so much for you now what will you do for him he gave you his life now how much more will you give back to him the Christian is pictured as a, an effort to pay back the debt, Piper continues, that we owe to God. The admission is made that we'll never fully pay it off, but the debtor's ethic demands that we work at it. Good deeds and religious acts are the installment payments we are making on the unending debt that we owe to God. And I just say that such thinking distances salvation from sanctification. 
See, on, on the one hand, the debtor's ethic might go, we're saved by grace through faith, and then once we are saved, right, we respond by working on our sanctification. As, as if when you're in the sanctification phase, you kind of forget all about your salvation. And um, these things are distant, so they seem like two different things. Now, this can be really blatant. Um, some, some say that when you come to Jesus, you become a believer. And once then you are believing in Jesus and you um, trust in him for your salvation, then after that you become a disciple as you work out what obedience to Christ means. Um, In other words, right, you walk through the front door believing in salvation, believing in Jesus. And then once you walk through that front door, you're saved, forgiven of your sin, escaped condemnation. And then if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus... You can continue walking right throughout the house, becoming more and more intimate with Jesus. That is, becoming a disciple, a committed follower, learning his ways and doing his deeds. And, and that's, that's a, a dichotomy that says, uh, Jesus is Savior, then I made him Lord. Or he's, he's, I just believe in him, and then there's this whole effort, like this second life, as if, if salvation is one thing and sanctification is another. That's a real blatant way to put these two things in contrast. But, but there's even another more subtle way of doing things, which which I think is legitimate biblically, and I did some last week, but um, it's not quite what Romans 6 is getting at this week as I saw. But another subtle way is to talk about sanctification only in terms of response. So in other words, right, we're saved by grace through faith, and such a salvation ought to make a huge difference in our life. Now, there's plenty of biblical warrant for such thoughts, all right? Um, even as we did last week, right, from chapter 5, verse 20, is that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. How, how then shall we live in light of that great grace? Um, say, 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf, right? Christ died for us, what can we do but to live for Him? Or Ephesians 2.10, For we are created We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So so God created us, changed us for good works that we we walk in once we're saved, after we're saved, we respond. Or Ephesians 4, right, that we're after this great three chapters in Ephesians salvation, chapter 4, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or 1 Peter 2, right, that that, uh, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. That that God has saved us and so that we then respond by proclaiming to him. Now, one of the dangers in this is that that we miss the, the organic connection between salvation and sanctification merely seen as response like like salvation is here and then we just respond over here as if there is not a connection. Well, I say this because the main thrust of Romans 6, as we transition here to sanctification, it's not a response connection. Okay, as I preached it last week, it's not a response connection. Listen to Marcus Johnson's words. He says this, in Romans 6, Paul responds incredulously to an imaginary interlocutor. He just responds like, what? What are you talking about to this questioner? Who suggests that continual sinning by those who are justified might furnish the occasion for God to serendipitously manifest his grace. As we continue in sin, that grace may abound. Chapter chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, Paul's incredulity is directed toward 
an apparently fundamental misunderstanding of the reality of salvation and its far-reaching, existence-altering effects. So he says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's existence-altering. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's important to note what Paul does not say in order to appreciate what he does say. In response to the absurd notion that God's free grace in justification provided the possible occasion for continual sin, Paul does not say, Do you not know that we all owe God a debt of gratitude for the fact that he justified us freely in Christ? Neither does he say, do you not know that our justification produces in us the effect of sanctification? No, Paul's answer stretches back to a more all-encompassing reality, our participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The questioner has not understood what it means to be united in Christ. Our participation in Christ sets us free from the enslavement of sin. And our participation in his resurrection makes us alive to God in righteousness. As Douglas Moose said, Paul makes it clear by the sequence of this paragraph that we can live a holy life only as we appropriate the benefits of our union with Christ. Okay, here, here you go. Here's, here's another quote. This is kind of heady, okay, but this is important. This is, um, this is in this book, One with, One with Christ, I, I picked up this week. I should have picked it up last week. Marcus Johnson talking about an evangelical theology of salvation. He said this, Because it is a given for Paul that believers are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, his incredulity is perfectly understandable. He is not expressing the hope that believers might respond to God's grace in obedient gratitude or that God's freely justifying grace might provide an incentive to lives of holiness. Rather, he's insisting on the more fundamental, inescapable reality that believers are the present beneficiaries of the sanctifying effects of Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff. We've gone pretty deep pretty fast. right? But, but what he's saying here is that in Romans 6, the argument isn't, wow, look at the great grace of God, how do we respond? As biblically valid as that is. In Romans 6, the idea of sinning that grace may abounding is like bizarre because when we come to faith in Christ, we are united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And being united in Christ with, with, with a new life, there's no way that we can live in the old. See, it's not just a response. It's a, it's a reality of what has changed let me read that quote again. This is good. Because it's a given for Paul that believers are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, his incredulity, that is his questioning, that is he can't understand why you're even asking this, is perfectly understandable. He's not expressing the hope that believers might respond to God's grace in obedient gratitude or that God's freely justifying grace might provide an incentive to lies of holiness. Rather, he's insisting on the more fundamental inescapable reality that believers are the present beneficiaries of the sanctifying effects of Christ's death and resurrection. Right? So, so it's not that we respond in gratitude. It's not that we even respond to grace. It's rather that Paul points us to the reality of the union we have with Jesus. And that's why we can't sin that grace may abound. See, because when Christ died... We died with him. And when Christ was buried, we were buried with him. 
And when Christ rose from the dead, we what? Rose with him. That's why we sang, sang songs of resurrection today. In other words, right, we are united with Christ. That's my title of my message this morning is United with Christ. To continue in sin isn't wrong because it draws a wrong conclusion. It's wrong, it's, it's wrong because it's a response to salvation. It's wrong because it doesn't understand our union with Christ, which is the essence of our salvation. As Johnson says here on page 29, he says, The premise of this book is that the primary, central, and fundamental reality of our union with Jesus Christ uh, I'm sorry, the premise of this book is that the primary, central, and fundamental reality of salvation is our union with Jesus Christ. Because of which union all the benefits of the Savior flow to us, and through which union all the benefits are to be understood. The most basic of all saving truths is the union that God the Father forges between the believer and his Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. To put it plainly, to be saved is to be united with the Savior. Okay, so you understand what I'm saying? Now you can just take my, my word uh, with that, or we can see it in the text. And I think it is Paul's argument in Romans 6. And for us to understand it, we need to understand those things. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles. The Romans chapter 6. If you did bring a Bible, the pew in front of you, page 942. And as I read, I want you to listen to how Paul describes our union with Christ. In particular, I want you to listen to the number of times that Paul is talking about our union with us, death or with this burial, or with this resurrection, or with this life. Like these, just listen for these words. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be Slaves to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I've memorized that passage because it's a difficult passage and I wanted to just stir it in my mind just to, to help me understand it. But one of the things that happens here in chapter 6 is similar to what happened in chapter 5. Remember when I preached a few weeks ago, uh, a message, I forget what it was entitled, but it was verses 15 through 19, where over and over and over again, every verse, Paul said the same thing. Two men, right? Two acts producing two responses. Every, every line, every, t- every single time. And, and I feel like in many ways what is true then is almost exactly true here because every time <clears throat> he's talking about how in some way or f- fashion that Jesus 
died and was rose again, and we are united with Jesus when he died and rose again. Therefore, we died and rose again. Therefore, just as Jesus died and rose again, and death doesn't have power over him, so we died and rose again, death no longer is powerful over us. Therefore, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the argument. So if you understand everything I've been talking about, about existence-altering union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, how we are joined with him, then you've got the passage. But we're going to go over it just to make sure we, we got it this morning. These two words, death and life, are going to form my outline this morning as we are united with Christ, we are united in death, we are united in life, and every verse we'll see these concepts come up. In fact, just, just look here. Here's, here's our text, Romans 6, 1 through 11. And I just circled every time there that, that death or died or crucified or or life, or resurrection, or alive comes, or raised from the dead. And, and I don't know, you can count those circles. How many we got? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, 20 22. How, how many times per verse? Twice per verse, right? 11 verses, twice per verse. Now also look at the with hymns. Baptized into Christ. Baptized into his death. That is like joy. We are with him. With him. With him. With him. With him. With Christ. With him. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, if you go on your math, whatever. Point seven, three, who knows, percentile. Death, life, with Jesus. Like, these things are just spinning over and over and over again. That's what it is. Now, the important thing here isn't the number of times. The important thing is to see how... Predominant this thought is. Death, burial, resurrection with Christ, and we are with him in Christ. Thus my title, United with Christ. Thus my outline, United in death, united in life. Now, this morning, we are going to just go through these verses and pull out death and life like we did when we were in Romans chapter 5. Come up every verse. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Right? And there, there's the question, right? How can we who died to sin still live in sin? It's not, it's not our response. How can we who have experienced God's grace do anything else other than walk in grace? Paul's focusing here on our condition that we have been united in Christ. If we've died with Christ... We cannot continue to live in sin. In fact, that's the whole, the whole thrust of, of Romans 5, is how we're united with Adam, but now we're united with Jesus. And as we're united with Jesus, we, we can't sin because we're united with him. And then Paul begins with the illustration of baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, these verses are filled with controversy. When Paul says baptism, what's he talking about? He's talking about water baptism? Is he talking about spirit baptism? Is he talking about some other, other sort of baptism, like a baptism into Christ? Um, and, and much of the controversy here has to do with Paul, what he says about baptism he says in verse 3 that baptism is the means by which we were baptized into his death. In other words, right, it's our baptism that unites us with Christ. 
And thus, it's our baptism uniting with Christ that leads us to salvation, and therefore some take this to mean that baptism is imperative for one's salvation. I mean, you're honest with verse 3, and it says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, meaning that the baptism was the thing that linked us to Jesus? And there are people who believe this. There are people, churches in this town that believe that, that baptism is necessary for your salvation because it, it comes right here. We've been baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death. Now, the, the greatest difficulty with that argument has to do with the book of Romans, right? Mid-chapter 3, through all of chapter 5, he's talking about salvation, and nowhere mentions baptism. And he works long and hard to show that salvation comes by grace through faith. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemptions in Christ Jesus. Romans 4.4, 4, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 5.1, we have been justified by faith. And so to think that Paul all of a sudden in chapter 6 just inserts this other requirement that he's been all quiet about when he's talking about salvation is very difficult to believe. Because why didn't Paul mention that anywhere in chapters 3 through 5 when talking about salvation? It only comes up when he's talking about our, our sanctification. Which really makes sense if you believe that baptism is an act of obedience to Christ and is a, a way of our, of our sanctification. But the difficult matter, and I don't want to escape this, comes in verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. It's by baptism into death. Right? There's something people say happens there, and we cannot just say, oh, well, he didn't mean that. Go back, go back there to, to chapters 4 or 5 and, and 6, or, or maybe. But it appears here that baptism is the, the union. Now, you've got several interpretive options here. You can either say that, that baptism here isn't water baptism, right? But it's referring to the spiritual baptism in Christ somehow. Because, see, our water baptism doesn't unite us to Christ, but our spiritual baptism does. And, see, that's a way that you can get around the, the strength of this language that's by baptism that we are buried, so, right? By, by baptism, right? Being immersed into Christ, which is a, which is a valid interpretation. I think that's is fine. It keeps the integrity of the text. It allows us full confidence to speak about by baptism we're joined to Christ. That is through our spiritual baptism, our spiritual immersion in Jesus. When Jesus comes, he unites us with him and we're buried with him entirely. That's legitimate. Right? But there is another way. If you take it as water baptism, if you understand water baptism as the symbol that it is. Listen again to John Piper. He says, In the wider context of Romans, I think it would be a mistake that water baptism is the means of our being united to Christ. Right? Chapter 3, 4, and 5. Nowhere talks about baptism. In Romans, faith is the means by which we are united to Christ and justified. But we show this faith. We say this faith and signify this faith and symbolize this faith with the act of baptism. Faith unites us to Christ. Baptism symbolizes that union. And then he takes this analogy of the wedding ring. When a married couple stands before people and their friends, what do they say? They say, with this ring, I thee wed. Right? The, the ring, and Piper continues to say, when we say that, with this ring, I thee wed, we don't mean that the ring or the putting on the ring on the finger is what makes us married. It shows the covenant and symbolizes the covenant, but the covenant-making vows make the marriage. So it is with faith and baptism. 
And I think the analogy is, is good. The wedding ring is a symbol of marital love, right? Maybe you've been to weddings and they talk about how it's made of precious gold or precious um, metals, demonstrating how love is precious. Or how it's circular, meaning the, the never-ending circle of love, right? Maybe you've heard that before. It's, those are good, good pictures. That, but that's a symbol of what's really happening. What's really happening is you're, you're pledging your love to your spouse. It's not the ring. Though we say, by this ring I thee wed, and so it can be with baptism, water baptism. It's a symbol, it's an analogy. So here's my question to you. What's the analogy? Well, the analogy is death, burial, and being raised. The picture is one being buried, verse 4. We were buried with him in baptism. The picture here in verse 4 is being raised. And that's where baptism, whether he's talking about spiritual baptism or whether he's talking about water baptism, is a perfect symbol of salvation. Right? Is that when someone enters the water of baptism, they tell their story about how God saved them from darkness into light. How God has brought them from sin to righteousness, brought death to sin and alive to God, and then, right, immersed into the waters, dying, if you will, and coming up out of the waters, raised from the dead, if you will. I mean, that's the picture that Paul is talking about here in uh, Romans 6, of, of, of dying and then coming to life. That's what God does in a soul that believes in Christ, unites him in his death, unites him in his life. That, in fact, that's exactly what verse 5 says, explaining this. It says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so whether it's baptism or whether it's water baptism, whether it's symbolic baptism, still it's the water baptism that, that demonstrates that reality of what it means to, to connect with Jesus. That's why we don't sprinkle infants at our church. The imagery doesn't make sense. It's not about Romans 6, whether it's talking about baptism or not. The, the imagery is a new life that's, that's died, that's raised, that's walking in newness of life. And our practice at Rock Valley Bible Church is to baptize those who come to faith. It's an opportunity we have every summer. We, we go out to uh, Rock Hut State Park Sunday afternoon, put a loudspeaker out there on the beach for all to hear. And uh, those being baptized... Walk down there, they have an opportunity to tell the world of how God has changed them, how they used to live before Christ, how Christ came in saving faith, they understood forgiveness of sins, how their life has changed. It's an expression of that faith, it's a picture of that faith. They're baptized, immersed in the water and coming out, right? Letting the whole world know that they're identifying with Christ, symbolizing the, the cleansing from their sin, their, their burial and death under the waters, and then they're coming out into newness of life. In fact, that's what I say every time I baptize someone. Take them and I say, based upon your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dunk them in the water, bring them out, and then I always say, so walk in newness of life. Because that is the picture of what baptism is. And we offer that every summer. If you've not been baptized, a believer, you want to be baptized, talk to me and I'll answer your questions, work these things through. Um, normally we go out to Pierce Lake. But uh, Pierce Lake is closed right now. I'm not sure you've seen that. Some siltification problem. Huh? Olson Lake. Olson Lake, I'm sorry. <laughs> Olson Lake, not Pierce Lake. Um, maybe we go in Pierce Lake, that'd be okay. Um, but they're not swimming beach there. But somehow, you know, I can't, I, I can't quite understand this. Have you seen that in the paper? Where it talks about some, there's silt in the thing, and so they've got to desiltify it, but the state's desiltifier machine is broken. I'm like, how about rent one from... 
from uh, way Wisconsin. <laughs> I don't understand it. I just laugh every time. You know, it's a little bit like, do they really want to be a part of the solution or do they want to be part of the problem? And just say, oh, it's broken. Not my problem. Typical government workers, but that's for another day. All right. All right, so let's look at, at verse 5. No offense. No offense. Okay. No offense. There are some teachers. There are some road guys in here. Sorry, Wayne. <laughs> All right, let's look at verse 5 again, right? If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, verse 5, it's interesting here. So we think about death and we think about life and we think about being combined with him. It really goes beyond our life. It speaks to the resurrection of Jesus. It shows how since we have died with Christ, we will live with Christ in a resurrection like his. That is, we will be raised from the dead even. So verse 4 speaks about just newness in life. I think that's talking about sanctification. But here it's even talking about resurrection. That's, that's hope beyond the grave. That it's not just a, a life that's sanctified, that's walking in a holy, God-pleasing manner, but it's a, a life that is, is even raised from the dead. Eternal, in fact, that's the point of eternal life, right? Chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right there, to eternal life. And there's the eternal life aspect of it. That's being raised from the dead. That's being living forever, united with Christ. And any newness of life that we have, any sanctification we experience is only a taste of our future life. And we'll be like Jesus, fully redeemed, fully restored into his image. In fact, that's the aim of our salvation. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's predestining us to be conformed to his image. That is, that is changed it, to be like Christ someday. To be changed into his image. We will be fully like him one day. As it says in 1 John 3 verse 2. When we see him we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Fully raised. Just like Christ is. Living forevermore. That's what verse 5. It's got seeds into eternity. Verse 6. Again we know that our old self was crucified with him. In order the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, this is what it means to be united with Christ. It means to be crucified with Him. It means to die with Him. Our, our fighter verse um, today, I, did, I wasn't planning on this. I, I got to our prayer meeting and we're, we're thinking about our, our fighter verses. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here, here it is again, right? If you belong to Jesus, your flesh is crucified. Because you died with Christ. You were crucified with Christ. And having been crucified with Christ, that is, you're different. How can you live in sin? It's Paul's argument. Now, I admit this is difficult to understand, right? 2,000 years ago is when Jesus was crucified. And we, living here in the 21st century, were crucified with him. Back then, 2,000 years ago? How many find that difficult to believe? I, all you guys are a lot smarter than I am. I'm like, I'm like, what? How does that work? How are we crucified with him? Like, 
This is total metaphysics. This is like history. And yet, what's amazing is Paul expects us to know these things. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. He's writing to believers in Rome, a first century church, who don't even have the New Testament. They know, right? We know. You're supposed to know. In fact, is that not his argument in chapter 6, verse 1? Um. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know? Do you die to sin? How can you live? How can you live in this? So in other words, right? They're supposed to know that when they believed in Christ, they they died to sin, were joined to Christ. This is supposed to be something that we know. And yet, it's hard. It's hard. Chapter six, verse three. Right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized in His death? You should know this. And I'm scratching my head thinking, boy, I don't, even, I don't even know this. But such is the expectation of Paul. Such is the expectation of the church in Rome. See, the, the reality is that few of us really know this. And I would say this, it's a mystery. It's a good word, mystery. How it is reunited with Christ. Now, so a mystery is something that you, like, you like don't quite know. And the interesting thing about mystery is it's good and worthwhile to try to explain it and understand it. But once you fully got it, it's no longer a mystery. So you fail in knowing. So mystery means you try to know, but you, you don't exactly know. I mean, it's just, just difficult here, the, the, the mystery of, of what it is. But it is the, the reality here is that I would say this, that to live a sanctified life, if we're going from salvation to sanctification... If we're making that transition, the first, most important, highest uttermost thing you need to know is that you're united with Christ. Isn't it curious here that Paul doesn't begin his discussion of sanctification with a list of do's and don'ts? Right? We've been saved. Now here's everything you need to do. Right? Let's, let's, let's pull out that list. Just tell me what to do so I can start checking it off and start doing everything with my sanctification. He doesn't start there because that's, that's not the path to sanctification. The path to sanctification is first and primary, understand your salvation fully and how it affects your whole life. Because such lists will never see us experience sanctification. They won't. Oh, they'll help us externally with some things. But they won't help with what Paul is talking about, a deep-rooted, intrinsic sanctification that flows from us. See, it's only when we understand the union that takes place with Christ in our salvation that we could ever hope to live a a sanctified life. Now, speaking of this word of of mystery, here's a book I have on my shelf. It's called The The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. I I pull this up because that word mystery is is there. but, but some is because this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a mystery of sanctification that's tied in with the gospel that we don't quite understand, but is the way that it, that it works. Right? And as we understand and experience the, the gospel in our lives, the fruit will be sanctification. And as we see the gospel working in our lives, it will work itself out in sanctification. And so this is an old book. And so Bruce McRae summarizes this book. He said, okay, here's, here's, here's the summary of this book. I think it's on page 13, as I remember. Yeah, page 13. Um, here's what it says. 
He said, grasp the main idea of the book. Here it is. You are more sinful than you can imagine. The doctrine of original sin is true. Thus, Ephesians, Romans 5. That's why we need to have we're sin in Adam, right? We are stuck in Adam, right? But there's union with Jesus, right? You're more sinful than you can imagine. The doctrine of original sin is true. You cannot reform your flesh. You cannot become a better person by your own strength, no matter how hard you try. But cheer up. If you're a Christian, you have come into union with Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you are sanctified and made holy. Through Christ, you are a new creation. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Therefore, pursue the life of faith in Christ with all diligence. It's the mystery here. It's like, yes, on the one hand, we are sanctified completely, totally, by believing and trusting. There's where our sanctification works and trusts as we're connected to the vine. Even Jesus said, right, connect yourself to the vine. You'll bear much fruit. We're connected there. And he says, work at it diligently with all your heart. But don't miss this aspect of union with Christ because it is, I believe, the first and foremost and primary thing we need to know. We think about our sanctification. Look at verse 6 again, right? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so we really embrace that and understand that that's when we bring our body a sinful passion to nothing. Again, in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. You go to a funeral... And you look at the body there in the casket. Right? There's, there's lots of difference between us and, and that body. Um, but the biggest difference is that body has no life, not moving. But you know what's also true about that body? That sinning person will sin no more. Because a dead body cannot sin and that's what takes place in the gospel. Our old self was crucified with Christ. Our old self was dead. We've been set free from sin. That's what Paul is saying. Now, it's not to say we won't ever struggle with sin. Right? There, there's some who might fall into a perfectionism, right? That, that you have to, if you believe, then you're never going to sin again. But Paul, in chapter 7, right, struggled a lot. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What are we talking about, Paul? I thought sin was dead. But it's alive. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see a different law at work in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's talking about this battle that he... That he has there. Right? So it, it's not at all a, a perfection from sin. But he's talking about a freedom from sin. We will sin by choice. We are, are free from sin. Those who don't believe in Jesus are bound in their sin. They have no choice but to sin. That's where they are. But we who have this crucified flesh. We now are, are free from sin. Because our old self has died. We're no longer slaves of sin. 
And that's where Paul picks up in, in verse 8, right, this idea about our life in Christ. Again, life, death, connected with Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, 2,000 years ago when he died, when we died, when we trusted, right, we believe that we will also live with him, right, because when we connect ourselves with his death, we connect ourselves with his life. Verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, right? When we unite with a death, we will unite in the life. Verse 10, here's talking about Jesus. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See, when Jesus died, he died to sin. One sacrifice for all time. And now his life is before the presence of God all the time. And we see that we are united in death and we are united in that life. And as Jesus died, is, is living now with the Father, so we are, are there as well. And verse, uh, verse 9, we skip that maybe. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Is that Christ being raised? He's not going to die again. He's, he's got eternal life there. He's, and as we are united with him, so we are. Here comes the conclusion. You ready? The application to my message. Paul's application. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now you know what's special about this verse? In all of Romans, this is the first time he commands anything. It's astonishing. Here we are, five and a half chapters in, and he finally says, here's your first command. And, and it deals with, now there's, there's commands we've pulled out, right? There's sin and to realize our sinfulness and there's faith and believe and we've got we to gotta be trusting in Christ. To trust is where you are. If not, cry out to him and, and trust him. Right? There, there's implications of that. But here's the first command that comes out explicitly. So you also must consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the first step to sanctification is union with Jesus, and that we with our minds would consider ourselves, we would think ourselves united with Christ in his death and united with Christ in his life. And we'll see two more commands in verse 13, 12 coming. This will be next week. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Right? You can't have sin reign. Because if you're united with Christ, you can't do that. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, right? That, that God has changed you, transformed you, given a new life. You, you, you can't walk those ways anymore. So consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And oh, I wish it were so easy. Because the longer you walk with Christ, the more you understand how difficult that is. But it is, catch me now, this is the path to sanctification is our salvation and understanding that primarily our salvation, it means we're united with Christ. We are with him, with him in everything, in his death and in his resurrection and in his current sinless life and someday with him in eternity. There's the gospel and there's the way that Paul prescribes us to begin our track of sanctification. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that in these things, deep theology today, Father, I pray that we would love this gospel as that which changes us and, and transforms us. The gospel mystery of sanctification. 
Father, everything that Paul spoke about here is, is just the difference the gospel makes in our life. And, and I pray, God, that we would see that and experience that and know that. God, the battle's real. When we get to Romans 7, we'll see and we'll feel that battle. I'm not, I'm not excusing that in any way, not diminishing that. That battle is there, but I, I pray, God, that you would help us, first and foremost, to think and dwell long and hard on our dominion or on our union with Christ. God, we have indeed been changed. I mean, just other verses in scriptures, we've been regenerated by the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That we are a new creation in Christ. As Jesus said, that we are born again. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. God, our hope is a, a living hope in Christ. And so, Lord, as you have transformed those who believe and trust in you, I pray for the one here who's not trusting in you, doesn't know this freedom from sin. God, I pray that you convict hearts that they would cry out to you. God, in a time when you may be found, may, may people be baptized this summer because of this day and because of just the word working in their hearts and their lives that, yes, they are believing and trusting in Christ. So help us, oh God, I think of Rock Valley Bible Church in general as we, as we go through these next several weeks. God, through the, the mysteries of sanctification, sanctify us, God. Make us to be a pure and holy people, not just externally, God, but internally who know the joys of what it means to walk in Christ in all ways. So I pray you'd help us, be with us in these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.